Michael, it's very good to see you today. Welcome of always to our San Diego Sunday, <clears throat> first Sunday of every month. And for people who are watching this delayed on YouTube, I invite everybody to think about occasionally joining us on a Sunday, if you'd like to, for the first Sunday or any Sunday, by sending me your email address to newsguy55 at aol.com, N-E-W-S-G-U-Y-5-5 at aol.com. I'm Ted. This program's been around for a couple of, maybe four years, either on or off Zoom. Roy's happy to have you. Michael, good to see you feeling relatively fit. Yeah. Take it away. Well, actually, I ask you the first question, don't I? Yes. So the question is from Nick Gulo, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And he says, during my Atma Vachara practice, I feel like I go through many, many days of serene calmness, but then my mind will suddenly grow quite agitated, latching onto this and that for days on end. Is this normal? That's question number one. And number two that follows up quickly. Also during these periods of serenity, wild things in the world, wild things in the world, almost comical things, they are so unexpected, will arise as though trying to pull me back for a reason. Is this my mind manifesting tests, maybe opportunities for growth? Michael. Um, the question, is this normal? Yes, it is. This is the nature of the mind. The mind is ever fickle, ever changing. Sometimes it will be calm, sometimes it will be agitated. But none of these things need concern us. <clears throat> because in Atmanvichara, self-investigation, we are not investigating anything that is changing or appearing or disappearing. We're investigating that which alone is permanent. What is permanent is our own being, our, our existence, I am. So the, our sole aim in Atmavichara is to remain focused on this fundamental awareness, I am, the awareness of our own existence. And this is the one thing that never changes. It ever remains. It, it shines in waking, it shines in dream, and it shines in sleep. It means we shine in waking, we shine in dream, and we shine in sleep. We, as the fundamental awareness I am, <clears throat> that is what alone is real. That is what we should be concerned about. If we attend to the mind, the mind will always be changing. The mind means... No, I'm not talking about, when we talk about mind, we have to be careful because mind consists of two elements, basically, the subject and all the objects. The subject is ego, the first thought, I. The objects are all other thought. everything else is objects. So um, the, the objects, the, the phenomena that appear in the view of the mind, in the view of ego, are ever-changing. Ego itself is not steady. It appears in waking and dream, and it disappears in sleep. So none of these things are permanent. What is permanent is only the reality of ego. That is, ego is the adjunct conflated awareness. I am this body. I am such and such a person. I am Nick. I am Ted. I am Michael. I am whoever. That is, the, that is ego. In that ego... What is real is only that fundamental awareness I am. 
So in Atma Bichara, we are trying to hold on to that fundamental awareness I am. To the extent to which we hold on to that, the adjuncts will drop off. <clears throat> so let the mind be calm, let the mind be agitated. It doesn't matter. That is the nature of the mind to go through. Its mind is always changing. Let the mind be. That is not, <clears throat> so long as we are attending to the changeable mind, we are not doing Atma Vichara. Atma Vichara is attending to that which is ever unchanging, ever immutable, unchangeable, namely our own being. <clears throat> so that is what we should be concerned about. And regarding the second part of the question, also during these periods of serenity, wild things in the world will arise as though trying to pull me back. Is this my mind manifesting tests or opportunities for growth? And that is, so long as we allow our attention to move away from ourselves towards anything else, everything else is just a, a, a manifestation of our Vasanas, our Vishaya Vasanas. That is, all phenomena are what are called in Sanskrit as Vishayas. Vishayas means objects or phenomena. The seeds that sprout of these uh, phenomena are called Vishaya Vasanas. That's our, the, the, our own inclinations to experience things other than ourselves. <clears throat> so things will be constantly appearing and disappearing. It need not concern us. Whatever appears is not our concern. To whom does it appear? That is what we need to be focused on. To whom does all do all these things appear? To me. So we focus on the eye to which everything else appears. <clears throat> so, yes, whatever may appear, we can take it as an opportunity for growth. How is it an opportunity for growth? If we allow our attention to go after what appears, we are missing that opportunity. If instead of allowing our attention to go after what appears, we hold on to that which is ever shining, never appearing or disappearing, namely our own being, we are thereby taking the opportunity to grow spiritually. So yes, in a sense, we can say whatever appears, it's an opportunity for growth. But how is it an opportunity for growth? So long as we attend to those things, we are missing the opportunity. What we need to attend to is our own being. <clears throat> or in order to turn and in order to turn our attention away from whatever appears back towards our own being, we, sh we should constantly bear in mind that the, the pointer, the clue that Bhagavan gave us, to whom does this appear? Whatever may appear, to whom does it appear? Whatever appears, it appears only to me. So we try to turn our attention back to that me. The me towards which, uh, to which everything appears is ourself as ego. But when we turn our attention back to ourself, we are letting go of other things and we are holding on to the fundamental awareness I am. So to the extent to which we attend to the reality of ego, namely our own being, to that extent will ego subside. So this is a very, very powerful clue that Bhagavan has given us to whom. Whatever appears, to whom does it appear? That, that doesn't mean we ask the question, to whom does it appear? We turn our attention away from whatever appears, back towards ourselves, the one to whom it appears. 
so so if we our attention is fixed on ourselves, whatever be the state of mind, whether it's calm or agitated, that won't concern us. In fact, to the extent our attention is fixed on ourselves, ego and therefore the mind will subside and calmness will result. But we are not looking for calmness. We're not looking for anything that appears or disappears. We're looking for that which is permanent, that which is ever shining, namely our own being. <clears throat> so I hope that is an adequate answer to that question. I th it is, as far as I'm concerned, it's perfect. Nick is not here. I can't see anybody because we have a larger than normal crowd, so it's on a couple of pages. Uh, at least he's not on the first page. Uh, I'll send it to him, though. I'll tell him that it'll be on YouTube. So thank you for answering those two questions. Want to go on to the question number yes. two? Okay. From Charles Cook. Uh, this has been a while ago since he sent it in. I was happily surprised to see it today when it showed up on the list that you sent me and the order of the questions. Michael, uh, he says, this is an author. There is an author named Michael Langford who has provided a unique means of turning within. I believe he's a strong Ramana person too. Michael, you have commented on this in a blog post. This Michael Langford is the author of this book, which I just bought a while ago, and I find it fascinating. Langford basically has uh, the person shut his eyes and focus on their everyday ordinary awareness. If thoughts arise, what is to simply let them pass and try to notice? Try to notice awareness, watching awareness. That's a phrase that's repeated a hundred times. As I recall, he says, you commented positively on this approach in the blog post. Michael, could you please expand on your thoughts regarding this particular approach? Is this akin to comments by Sadhu Om in the path of Sai Ramana, where he uses the analogy of the reflected light from a broken shard of mirror in a dark room that leads one to the pervading light of the sun. Yes, uh, one thing you misread there, the path of Sri Ramana, not the path of Sai Ramana. Oh, okay. <laughs> I fall. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, firstly, what Michael Langford has provided is not a unique means of turning within. It is just one way of describing the practice of self-investigation. There's nothing unique about it. Um, Bhagavan also, in some places, describes the practice of self-investigation in similar words. But and this isn't the way Bhagavan generally describes the practice, because there are various problems. That is, awareness watching awareness, this term that Michael Langford has coined, this is a Co correct description of the practice if we understand it correctly. But as always with words, words can be understood differently in different ways. And to talk of awareness, watching awareness, is not the most direct way to describe this practice. What is the natural name <clears throat> in this context? I assume that what Michael means by awareness is what is aware because the term awareness is used in many different contexts. So um, uh, we need to raise awareness about uh, human rights. We need to raise awareness about environmental justice. 
that's one way in which awareness is, is used. Because awareness can mean, generally when we talk about awareness, we're talking about awareness of something. That is not the sense in which it's meant here. In this context, awareness means what is aware. What is aware? Or who is aware? I am aware. So rather than talking about awareness, watching awareness, which sounds like a one third person thing, uh, watching another third person thing, why not put it simply as I watching I? That's much more direct way of saying it. Because the natural name of awareness in the sense of what is aware is I. That is what is aware is always aware of itself as the first person, I. So um, though it is not, it is a, it is, if it's understood correctly, and I'm not even quite sure what Michael Langford understands by it, because some of his ideas are very, very strange and very far removed from Bhagavan's teachings. But if he, if he understands it as I think he should understand it, it means what is aware, watching what is aware. That means I watching myself, I watching I. It's, it, that's a much more direct way of saying it. That is, what we actually are is just pure awareness. What we now seem to be is adjunct conflated aware. That pure awareness is always aware of itself as just I am, not as I am this or I am that. I am this or I am that is an identification. What is aware of itself as I am this or I am that is ego. And only when we are aware of ourselves as I am this or I am that, are we aware of anything other than ourselves? So in the, what we actually are is the pure awareness I am. That pure awareness I am is aware of nothing other than itself. In other words, it's aware of nothing other than its own being, I am. That is what we actually are. So the awareness we should be attending to is that fundamental awareness I am. Um, so the description is not an incorrect description. So in that way, in that sense, I may have commented on it positively. Yes, it's a, it is a, a way of describing the practice, but it's not necessarily the clearest or most direct way of describing the practice. And certainly there's nothing unique about it. There's only one way that is in Bhagavan's path, turning within means turning our attention away from everything else back towards ourself. That is everything other than ourself is, so to speak, outside. What is within, inside, is only ourself. So turning within means turning towards ourself. And there's only one way of turning towards ourself, and that's turning towards ourself. We can describe the practice of turning towards ourself as turning our attention back to the awareness to, to be awareness that is aware of all other things. We can describe it in that way, but it's not, it's, it's not a, it doesn't make it a unique mean. There's only one means, and that means is being self-attentive. In Nana, Bhagavan has given a very, very clear and unambiguous uh, definition of what is meant by Atma Vichara, self-investigation. He says, <clears throat> uh, um, but the name uh, that is okay, how, how exactly how it's expressed in in Tamil. Um, the name Atma Vichara is only for always keeping the mind uh, um, 
um, <clears throat> always keeping the mind on oneself. That's the closest way, the most literal translation of it. When he says that the name Atmavichara is only for this, that means this. what is Atmavichara a name for? It's a name only for the practice of always keeping our mind on ourself. Keeping our mind on ourself means keeping our attention on ourself. So in other words, the, the practice of self-investigation is nothing other than self-attentiveness. In self-attentiveness, what is attending to what? We ourselves are attending to ourselves. Since we are awareness, we can describe it as awareness watching awareness, but that's a rather roundabout way of um, describing it. Secondly, um, it, it, this, um, Charles, uh, uh, in this question he wrote, Langford basically had the person shut his eyes and focus on their everyday ordinary awareness. Firstly, shutting our eyes is unnecessary. Are we aware I am only when we shut our eyes? No, whether our eyes are open or shut, we're always aware I am. So shutting the eyes is unnecessary. Even if we, the reason people shut their eyes when they're trying to turn within is to avoid being distracted by any sights. But even when we're not distracted by sights, we're distracted by signs, sounds or or sensations or something, even if we block out all the five senses, close all the five senses, metaphorically speaking, we are still distracted by our own mind. So closing the eyes is unnecessary. It doesn't matter whether our eyes are open or closed. What matters is that our attention is not going out through the eyes or the ears or even through the mind. It's not going out towards the thoughts or anything else. Our attention should be going within. That's back towards ourselves. <clears throat> so closing our eyes is unnecessary. And when it is said, focus on their everyday ordinary awareness, what is meant by everyday ordinary awareness? It's a rather ambiguous uh, term. What is everyday ordinary awareness? What we need to focus on is the fundamental awareness I am. That is, before we can be aware of anything other than ourselves, the first thing we are aware of is I am. Even before we can be aware of ourselves as I am Michael, or I am Charles, or I am Ted, or I am anyone, we have to... Uh, we first have to be aware I am. Awareness of all other things comes and goes. That is, only when we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, are we consequently aware of things other than ourselves. We're aware of ourselves as I am this body in waking and dream. So in waking and dream, we're aware of other things. But as I said earlier, whether we're aware of ourselves as I am this body or not, but one thing we are always aware of is our own being, I am. That is, in, in sleep, though we cease to be aware of anything other than ourselves, we're not even aware of ourselves as I am this person, but we don't cease to be aware of our own existence, I am. And that is why when we, people often say, no, no, when I'm asleep, I'm completely unconscious. Yes, we're unconscious in the sense we're not aware of anything. We're not aware of any phenomena but we never cease to be aware of our own being because awareness is our very nature and awareness is always aware of itself. It's not aware of itself as an object, it's aware of itself just by being itself. So we are always aware of ourselves. In, 
if people doubt this, if they say, no, no, I'm not aware of anything in sleep, we should just stop a little and consider. We are aware of three states. We're aware of this present state, what we call waking. We're aware of another state called dream, which is very like this state. It's a state in which we're aware of ourselves as I in this body, and we're consequently aware of other things. So there's very little... Well, according to Bhagavan, there's no difference between waking and dream. What we take to be waking is actually just a dream. But we're aware of these two seemingly different states because when we are in this state, we, we recognize other dreams as a dream, but this dream doesn't seem to us to be a dream. So waking and dream seem to us to be two distinct states, though actually they're one and the same state. But we're also aware of a third state, we're aware of having been in a state in which we were not aware of anything. How can we be aware of having been in a state in which we are not aware of anything if we were not aware of being in that state? That is, when we are asleep, we're not aware. I am now in a state in which I'm not aware of anything. What we're aware of in sleep is just I am. We're just aware of our own being. When we wake up, we recognize that we were in such a state and we say, I slept. I slept peacefully. I wasn't, didn't have any dreams. It was a, a calm, peaceful, uh, happy, uh, uh, blissful sleep I had. That is because we, we weren't aware of anything other than ourselves. So but when he talks about everyday ordinary awareness, that suggests awareness of things other than ourselves, because that is what people generally take to be awareness. But this, this awareness of other things appears only in waking a dream. It doesn't appear in sleep. What the awareness that shines in all three states is only the fundamental awareness I am. So that is the real awareness. That is the awareness we should be watching. That is the awareness we should be tending to. And that awareness is not something other than ourself. It is ourself. So we ourself are attending to ourself. So there are many subtleties and nuances but uh, but my, I suspect Michael Langford fails to um, fails to grasp these subtleties and nuances because he goes on and on uh, repeating the same thing: awareness, watching awareness, awareness, watching awareness. Yes, that's not that's not incorrect description of the practice, but it's not going in. It's not it's not delving into the subtleties of the practice, and it's not giving room for other ways of describing the practice. Bhagavan described the practice in many different ways. He sometimes described it as attending to ourself. Sometimes he described it as investigating the source from which we've risen. What does he mean when he says we investigate the source from which we have risen? What is, we who have risen are ego. That is, the rising I is ego. But what is the source from which this I has risen is only the fundamental I, the pure I, I am, the, the, uh, our own being, and that is what exists in all three states, is our awareness of our own existence, I am. From this fundamental awareness, which is ever-existing, ever-shining, in waking and dream, we rise as, I am this person, I am this body, I am such and such a person. And so, um, the, the source from which I, as ego, have risen, 
is I as I actually am, namely my own being, I am, the pure I am. So Bhagavan, as I say, he sometimes described it, the practice as investigating from where we have risen. Sometimes he described it as investigating to whom all these things appear. So, so many ways Bhagavan has of describing these things. Um, and why Bhagavan describes it in all these, these are all pointers, because no words can adequately describe this practice. Whatever words are used are just pointers. It's up to us to think deeply about the words Bhagavan has used and understand them correctly. It seems to me, from all that I've read of Michael Langford, I don't think he's thought very deeply about this. He certainly hasn't gone very deep into the practice, or he would have a clearer understanding, and he would <laughs> talk in a more refined and a nuanced manner about this practice. Um, so what he says is not wrong, but it's certainly not unique, and it's not, it's not necessarily the best way of describing the practice. Regarding the final question, is this akin to comments by Sadhuam in the Parthasri Ramana, where he uses the analogy of a reflected light from a broken shard of mirror in a dark room that leads one to the pervading light of the sun? Um, <clears throat> that is this analogy that Sadhuam uses, is an analogy to clarify the practice. So it's the same practice talked about, but Sadhuam is, is going much deeper into what the actual practice is. That is, the analogy he uses is the, the broken shard of mirror is not in the dark room. The broken shard of mirror is outside, but it is reflecting the light of the sun into the dark room. So if we're in the dark room and we see that broken shard of mirror, um, uh, uh, sorry, and we, we, if we're in the dark room and that broken shard of mirror reflects the sun, light of the sun into the room, we can use that reflected light of the shard of mirror to try and see things in the dark room. That's one way of doing it. Or we can, we can, we, if we're interested in where this light is coming from, we can turn our attention not towards the things that are illumined in the room by that reflected light. We can turn our attention back to the reflected light itself. And if we follow that reflected beam of light, we will, that will lead us out into the sunshine, and then we will see that the light, though it's reflected from the mirror, it's not actually coming from the mirror, it's coming from the sun. This is a nice analogy for, uh, uh, for um, understanding the relationship between the, the awareness that is called mind or ego and the real awareness that we actually are. The mind or ego is a reflected light. It's not the original light. It is the adjunct that is the original light is the pure awareness I am. That is the sunlight. The, 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 uh, e e the, the reflected light, which is ego or mine, is the, is the adjunct conflated awareness, I am this body. So uh, from the body, body meaning here all the five sheaths, the, the light of pure awareness reflects, so to speak, from this 
and produces this reflected light called I in this body, ego. We use this ego to see objects in the world. That is like using the reflected light from the mirror to see the objects in the room. But that is not the point. The point is that, I mean, that's misusing that light. That light is the, <clears throat> when there's a reflected light, there must be an original source of that light. So if we want to find the source of the reflected light, we have to follow the beam of reflected light back to where it's coming from. It's coming from the mirror. If we follow it to the mirror, then we will find we're in the broad daylight, the broad uh, sunlight. And then the mirror is no longer necessary because we, we are out in the sunlight. We are, uh, we've returned to the original light. So, of course, every analogy has its limitations, but this is a useful analogy because one of, the, um, one of the questions people often ask Bhagavan, in this, uh, this self-inquiry, which is the eye that we have to investigate? Is it ego or the real eye? When people ask questions like that, Bhagavan always replied, it is ego. Why did Bhagavan reply like that? Because actually there, no, there aren't two different eyes. But so long as people ask that question, they haven't understood that. We can illustrate this with another analogy. Supposing we're walking with Bhagavan uh, in the dim light of dusk along a, 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 a path going through a forest, say, and we see something in the dim light ahead of us lying on the path. And to us, it looks like a snake. So we're afraid. And we say, stop. And say, oh, Bhagavan, Bhagavan, there's a snake. Bhagavan assures us, no, it's not a snake. It's just a rope. But to us, it looks very much like a snake. So we are still afraid of it. So in order to remove our fear, Bhagavan says, look at it carefully. If we then ask Bhagavan, which it should I look at? Should I look at the snake or at the rope? What is he going to say? Obviously, he's going to say, look at the snake, because to us, it seems to be a snake. But if we look at the snake carefully enough, what do we see? Oh, it's not a snake, it's just a rope. Likewise, when Bhagavan says, when people ask Bhagavan such questions, should I attend to ego or to the real eye? Bhagavan said, it's sufficient just to attend to ego. Because ego, what seems to be ego is actually the real eye. Just like what seems to be a snake is actually just a rope. So if we attend to ego, what we will see is its underlying reality, namely the pure eye, what we actually are. So uh, coming back to this analogy, attending to ego is like attending to the reflective beam of light. If you attend to the reflective beam of light and follow it back to where it's coming from, you come, you, you're approaching the mirror, but when you come out into the open, you see or. Oh, the light isn't actually coming from that mirror. It's coming from the sunshine outside. So these analogies, we need to understand what the analogy, what, that every analogy has its limitations, of course. But we, we need to understand in what sense this analogy is analogous to what we are talking about. So this is just, Sadhuam used this analogy to clarify uh, to give us a deeper understanding of this practice, because the more deeply we un and uh, the deeper and more subtle our understanding of the practice, the deeper we'll be able to go in the pra in the practice. So, um, 
Yes, it is akin to this analogy. What, what Michael Langford is um, his uh, his favorite uh, term, awareness watching awareness, is a description of self investigation. But Sadhu um, um, uh, um, enabled us to understand more deeply by using this analogy. So in that sense, yes, it is remotely akin to it. Is that a clear answer to that question? I don't know so if Charles very, is here. The very, very thorough answer, and I, I'll see if Charles is here. I don't think he is. We've got over 30 people here. No, he's so not. I can see on. because it puts him in alphabetical order, yeah. so he's not here. But I did want to say, Michael, because you commented earlier that whatever words you use, of course, you have to say them with meaning, or what can you expect from that practice if you just say them as in rote fashion? I did read somewhere, and it seems to be very little written about Michael Langford, that he came to the awareness watching awareness idea after 27 years, if I got that right, of repeating I am, um, which which apparently set him up for moving forward. I don't want to think of it as being something that didn't work for him, but it led him to awareness watching awareness. Am I right? Did I hear you say, and have I thought correctly that the I am is awareness and vice versa? Yeah, I is an that which is aware is always aware of itself as I. So I is the natural name of awareness. We don't say awareness is talking, awareness is doing this, awareness is doing that. We say I am doing this, I am doing that. We don't say awareness knows what is happening. We say I know what is happening. So it's natural to refer to ourself, though we are awareness, we don't refer to ourselves as awareness, we refer to ourselves as I. Very good. So Very rather good. than saying awareness watching awareness, why not just I watching I, or I watching myself, which is the normal way of saying it in English. Anyone else have a quick follow-up question on this before we move on? Uh, since. Uh, Charles isn't here. Uh, I will send him note that you gave a very thorough answer to this. And I don't see anybody's hands being raised. So I think it's time to move on. As soon as I acknowledge that David Gray from London just showed up. I don't know if he's listening to me or not. But David, yes, I want I am. to hear that, I am. Mike, that Mike was be answering. I think we're going to get to it with no problem. Uh, a question you submitted over the weekend, over the last week. So yeah. stay in that chair there once you get comfortable. Okay, yeah. let's move on then to question number three from Richard, who says at the conclusion of answer 11 of Nanyar comes the following. Thus, when the mind stays in the heart, the I, which is the source of all thoughts, will go, and the self, whichever exists, will shine. Whatever one does, one should do without the ego I, if one acts in that way, all will appear as of the nature of Shiva, of God. Question, Michael, isn't the apparent ego the apparent doer? If there is no ego, is there also no doer? Who is the acting, who is the one acting in that case? Um, <clears throat> firstly, very, a, a few things I'll say in this regard. Firstly, um, 
generally people refer to this question and answer version of Nana. Nana was originally a set of questions asked by Sri Prakashan Pillai and answers given by Bhagavan. That is around 1901 or 1902. For many years, nobody knew about, but he had, but he had recorded what Bhagavan, the answers Bhagavan had given him at that time. It was only much later, in about 1923, that Shiva Pagashan nephew, Manikam Palai, wanted to publish a biography that Shiva Pagashan had written of Bhagavan in verse form, called Ramana Charita Ahaval. And in that Ramana Charita Ahaval, Shiva Pagashan in some lines of that, he had summarized the teachings that Bhagavan had given him at that time. So <clears throat> um, Manikam Palai wanted to uh, <clears throat> include a selection of the questions and answers as an appendix to that book. <clears throat> and so when he was when he brought the manuscript to Bhagavan and showed Bhagavan, Bhagavan approved of it. Um, but one thing Bhagavan did say regarding the second question and answer, or, or no, regarding the answer to the first question, who am I? Shiv Kashmpalai had added quite a lot of things that weren't said by Bhagavan. So when Bhagavan first saw that, he said, oh, I never said this. But then yeah. Bhagavan said, ah, because Shiv Kashmpalai had studied philosophy, that means he studied Vedanta philosophy when he was at university, he would have learned all these things, and he added these things for his own clarification. Let it remain. That's how the, the answer to the first question has all this thing about uh, I'm not this body and so on and so forth. Whereas Bhagavan's actual answer to the first question, the first question Shri asked was, Swami, who am I? Uh, to which Bhagavan replied, Arivainan, awareness alone is I. And then Shri Prakashampalai asked, what's the nature of awareness? And uh, Bhagavan said, Satchidananda. Um, <clears throat> so that's in the, uh, in the, that, that's the only, the answer Bhagavan gave, but it was expanded by Shri Prakashampalai. Anyway, this was all included as an appendix in the, um, in that book, uh, the biography of Bhagavan, Ramana Charita Ahaval, published in 1923. Um, I think at that time there were about 25 question and answers were, were, were there. I can't remember the exact number. But, but once this book was published, devotees became very interested because this is a very nice recording of Bhagavan's teachings. So people asked Shiva and Pillai, were there more questions and answers that you asked Bhagavan? So then a new version, a separate version of Nana was published with 30 question and answers and some miscellaneous sayings of Bhagavan. That was published maybe around 1924-25. Soon after that, Bhagavan rewrote that 30-question answer version in the form of an essay. And when Bhagavan rewrote it in the form of an essay, he refined it in many places, and he also omitted certain things which he felt weren't so useful or, or could lead to confusion. Um, so the, the main version of Nana is not the question and answer version, but the 
essay version. That essay version, because that essay version is written by Bhagavan, so that's his own writing. So in the Tamil collective works of Bhagavan, only the essay version is given. So that is the that we should take as the most reliable version. <clears throat> so, but even after this essay version, when Bhagavan wrote this essay version, that was maybe around 1925, 26, 27. I don't know exactly when. I, I don't know the exact year. But anyway, that it was it was definitely prior to 1920s. Uh, I think at least by 1927 he had written that, probably 1926. Um, <clears throat> But that 30-question-and-answer version continued to be published. It was In those days, all of Bhagavan's works were being published by a group of Bhagavan's devotees in the town, in Tiruvannamalai town, uh, and the main person who was doing it was a devotee called Ishwara Swami. <clears throat> in 1930, Bhagavan's younger brother, Chinnaswami, became manager of the ashram. And after becoming manager of the ashram, he then wanted to take over all the publications. But he couldn't stop others pub continuing to publish Bhagavan's works. So someone suggested Bhagavan has improved this question and answer version when he wrote the essay. But since people like the question and answer version, let's make a new question and answer version, taking some things from the 30 question and answer version and some of the improvements Bhagavan has done in the essay version. And so they concocted this 28-question-and-answer version, which the ashram has been publishing since about 1931 or so, uh, both in Tamil and in English, as a separate booklet. So the version that most people read nowadays in English is Professor T.M.P. Mahadevan's um, English translation of the 28-question-and-answer version, which was concocted from partly from Bhagavan's essay version and partly from the 30-question-answer um, uh, version. Many of the things that Bhagavan deliberately omitted when he wrote the essay, because he, he knew they would give room for um, confusion and ambiguity, were retained in this 28-question-answer version. So this particular portion... Um, that is of this portion that uh, Richard quotes here. Thus, when the mind stays in the heart, the eye, which is the source of all thoughts, will go, and the self, which ever shine, ever exists, will shine. That Bhagavan retained. It, uh, a more accurate translation of that is um, that this is part of the. That is, that answer to the 11th question, 10th and 11th question, most of it was included in the sixth paragraph of the, question, of the essay version written by Bhagavan. So what Bhagavan wrote is, Ividamaha manam hridiyatil tangave ella ninevagulakum mulamana nanembadu poi epodum ulla tan matram vilangam. That means um, <clears throat> um, only when the mind remains in the heart in this way will what is called I, which is the root or foundation or, or, or origin or, for all thoughts, depart, and oneself, who always exists, alone will shine. 
So this sentence Bhagavan retained in the essay version. Um, the word he uses was tan. Um, tan means is a Tamil pronoun that means oneself. But people generally translate it in English as the self, which is not a very good way of translating it because it makes when we talk about the self, it sounds like some it, it sounds like something. We're reifying ourselves. All Bhagavan said, oneself, which oneself, whoever exists, alone will shine. <clears throat> but then the next portion, whatever one does, one should do without the ego ti. If one acts in that way, all will appear to be the nature of Shiva. This was um, this was part of what Bhagavan omitted. Actually, in the original version, what uh, that is in the thirty question and answer version, what was there? Um, uh, um, wait a second. Sorry, it's very. I've got a, I've got a, a very old edition of this uh, thirty question and answer version. I've got a scan of it. Um, um, <clears throat> That's what Bhagavan has retained. Then, but what was there in the original version was, Ede Seidalam, whatever one does, Nan Engira Ahankara Matru Seya Vendiadu. It is necessary to do without the ego called I. Apadirandal, if, if one does thus, Tan mane ve tan mane mane vi um jagatishware pole ton ton tulavan elam shiva sarupamam. What that means is um if one if one if one if apadirandal, if so, that means if you if you do like that, it implies one's own wife will appear as the goddess. Jagadishwara uh, 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 means the, the uh, Devi, the, the goddess of the universe. Um, it will appear like the goddess of the universe. Um, Elam, everything is the Shiva Swarupa. Everything is of the nature of Shiva. This was an answer that Bhagavan gave particularly to Shiva Prakasham Pillai because of the state of mind he was in. Um, because Shiva Prakasham Pillai either at this time or soon after, his wife passed away. And he was in a dilemma whether to remarry or not. So Bhagavan was trying to free him from the idea, from that attachment to, the, um, to, um, to, to carnal pleasures, basically. I mean, attachment, the idea that he should be married. So Bhagavan says, if you, if you do without doership, then even... Uh, your wife will appear like Jagdishwari. Um, in the 28 question answer version, this last bit has been changed. It has been, um, instead of saying, um, Bhagavan said, Apadirinda, that means if so, but they've changed that as um, uh, say Dalam, if one does, uh, Nan, uh, oh, okay, sorry. Uh, sorry, they changed it as Apadi Seidal. If one does, everything will appear as Shiva Swarupa. They they abbreviated it, but they still retained what Bhagavan had omitted. The reason Bhagavan omitted this portion is because 
it was a useful answer to Shiv Prakash and Pillai in his then state of mind. But if we think about it, how can you do, that is, he said, whatever one does, one should do without ego. If we're doing without ego, then that it, it, so long as we think we are doing, that is ego. What is the sense of, that, that is a question Richard has asked, is about doership. What is doership? Doership is the very nature of ego. That is, when we rise as ego, we experience ourselves as I am this body, in which the term body, as Bhagavan clarified, refers to all the five sheaves, not just the physical body, but also the life, the mind, the intellect, and the will. All these five um, together make up the, uh, the, uh, all are referred to as body. So because we identify ourselves as this body and mind, whatever actions are done by mind, speech, or body are experienced by us as I am doing this. Because if I am this mind, then whatever the mind is thinking, I am thinking. Whatever the tongue is speaking, I am speaking. Whatever the body is doing, I am doing. So doership is the very nature of ego. So this <clears throat> Though Bhagavan may have said like this to Shiva Prakash and Palai, or maybe Shiva Prakash and Palai understood it, we don't know exactly, but it's not, the, it's, it's not a teaching that can stand up to scrutiny. Because how can you do without doership? The very fact that you're doing means you've got doership. If you don't have doership, then you're not doing. The body, speech, and mind may be doing, but you're not doing. So it's, it's though <clears throat> Bhagavan... The aim of that is one of Bhagavan often stressed the need for being free of doership. But being free of doership means being without ego. If we're without ego, we're not doing anything. Because it's only as ego that we feel I am doing. That is, what is doing is the mind, speech, and body. So long as we rise as ego, we experience the mind, speech, and body as I. So we say, I am doing. <clears throat> so, so long as we feel we're doing anything, the I that feels I am doing is ego. So we can't do without ego. We, when we're without ego, what remains is only being. So this is not the deepest teaching. So Bhagavan deliberately omitted this in the essay version. Um, so it, it's important to understand that that is... That's why knowing the history of these things and knowing the importance of the essay version rather than the question and answer version is very relevant here. Um, regarding the, uh, Richard's question, isn't the apparent ego the apparent doer? Yes. Um, if there's no ego, there's also no doer. Yes. But to say if there's no doer, ego, who is saying if there is no ego? The one who is saying if there is no ego is ego. So, so long as we are aware of anything other than ourselves, we who are aware of that are ego. That is, it's only when we rise as ego that we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. And only when we're aware of ourselves as I am this body are we consequently aware of other things. In both waking and dream, we are aware of ourselves as I am this body. It's a different body in the two states, but that's beside the point. We're always aware of our, we always identify ourselves as a body. We always experience a body as ourself, and consequently we experience the appearance of other things. As Bhagavan says in verse um, 
four of religion apatu. If oneself is a form, the world and God will be likewise. If oneself is not a form, who can see their forms and how? So we are aware of the appearance of other forms only because we identify ourselves with the form of this body. So, um, so long as we are aware of anything other than ourselves, any thoughts, feelings, memories, perceptions, um, intellectual actions, desires, likes, dislikes, anything, anything we're aware, anything other than I am, if we're aware of it, we who are aware of that are ego. So, yes, ego is just an apparent ego, but it seems to be very real so long as we're aware of anything else. And because ego seems to be real, that is in the view of ego, to whom does ego seem to be real? Only in the view of ego. So, as ego, we are, we are now experiencing all this, and we we cannot avoid the exp uh, experiencing doership so long as we rise as ego. So, if we want to be free of doership, we need to investigate ourselves and know ourselves as we actually are. When we know ourselves as we actually are, we can know ourselves as we actually are only by being what we actually are. That is by not rising as ego. When we don't rise as ego, then there, then only there is no doership. Um, so the do ego is always so long as ego rises, it is the doer. Whatever actions are done by mind, speech, and body are experienced by us as ego, as I am doing this. So uh, his final question is: Who is the one acting in that case? Well, what is actually doing? is these instruments of action, mind, speech, and body. But because we experience these instruments of action as I, that is, that's the nature of ego, to experience these instruments of action as I, so we experience I am doing this, I am thinking, I am talking, I am sitting, I am doing whatever. So I hope this answers that question uh, clearly. Pretty I thorough. don't know if Richard is yeah. here. Richard, are you here? I don't think you are. If you are, speak up now. And um, thank no, you. No, there's that. no Richard here. I don't think. No. Okay, I don't think so either. So, so well, I've chosen questions from people who aren't here, but at least David's here. <laughs> David's here, and uh, also uh, uh, David Gray. You're referring to is the next yes. question. So I'll proceed to that, and. Uh, he says in the little, he wrote me this just two days ago. In the little 40-page manual, Nanyar, Bhagavan in verse 11 sets out precisely the way uh, of realizing oneself. Some pundits have pronounced this as containing the ultimate guide of self-inquiry. I, says David, find it amazing that there are libraries full of conversations and instructions which veer away from this central guide. The little manual Nanyar states, the thought, who am I, will destroy all other thoughts. And like the stick used for stirring the burning prior, it will itself in the end get destroyed. Then there will arise self-realization. Getting to his question now, he asks, I have been hooked on verse 11 only for many years, Michael. Is this narrow-mindedness um actually this portion that uh it, it's these aren't these aren't verses this is prose and what he refers to as verse 11 i think he means answer 11 but actually the 
the portion that you quote here, David, the thought who am I will uh, destroy all other thoughts. Um, that actually is part of the answer to question 10. Um, your question, is this narrow-mindedness? No, we need to be extremely focused. That is to pursue this, um, this practice of self-investigation. We should be concerned with one thing and one thing alone, knowing who am I. And in order to know who am I, we need to attend to ourselves. So it, this isn't narrow-mindedness, this is single-mindedness, one-pointedness, ekagra. So that, that ekagrata is very, very necessary. That one-pointedness, singleness of mind is very necessary. So there's a difference between narrow-mindedness and single-mindedness. This is single-minded, and that single-mindedness is necessary. Um, regarding this answer, what um, the, the question 10 is... Um, wait a second, sorry. The, the question that Shiva Kashan asked is, um, manam epidi adangam, how will the mind subside or cease? And to that, the answer Bhagavan recorded is, nana ingira vicharane inalaye manam adangam. That means only by the investigation, who am I, will the mind subside. And in Tamil, to emphasize only, you can add the, there's a suffix, a, which intensifies the meaning and implies only. But to Bhagavan here didn't use this suffix once, he used it twice. Vichara inal means by vichara. But Bhagavan said, he didn't just say vichara inale, he said vichara inale ye, double emphasis. So he's strongly emphasizing only by this. Uh, this investigation, who am I, will the mind subside? And then in the next sentence, he says, Nana ingira nenevanadu, um, what is the thought, who am I? Here the term, the thought, who am I, is he's using the word thought here metaphorically. What he described in the first sentence as the investigation called, who am I, he refers to here as the thought called, who am I? So here, thought, we should understand it, not as the, the verbalized thought, who am I? He means the investigation. So the thought, who am I, destroying all other thoughts, um, will in the end itself be destroyed like the stick used, the, the, the corpse-burning stick, pinnam chudam tadipol. That is, when <clears throat> in India... Uh, generally, people uh, generally uh, Hindus observe the practice of cremation. Usually, when people die, they're cremated. Sometimes they're buried, but the general practice in India is cremation. And cremation is always done outdoors on an open pyre. That is, firewood is piled up, and between each layer of firewood, dry cow dung is put because cow dung is very dry. Cow dung is very combustible, and then the corpse is put on top of that pyre and more cow dung is put on top, and then usually the eldest son will light the fire, if there is an eldest son, will light the funeral pyre. And, um, but then as the, as the funeral pyre is burning, the, the firewood will be falling out, and even sometimes the limbs of the body will be falling out. So to keep it burning well, 
someone will be standing there with a stick. Whatever falls out of a fire, they'll push back into the fire. So to ensure that the body is completely burnt. So that stick that is used for stirring the funeral pyre, for, for keep, that is anything that falls out is pushed back in and the funeral pyre is kept burning well, that stick will eventually catch fire. And finally, when the, when the, when the job is nearly done, the person who's been stirring the fire with that stick will throw the stick in the fire and the fire will get burnt. So that's a nice analogy here. That is why Bhagavan here refers to the, um, the, the investigation, who am I, as the thought, who am I. What he, <clears throat> that is, we, when we think any thought, we are thinking about something. So thought is a, is a direct, when we direct our mind towards anything other than ourselves, that is called a thought. So Bhagavan is metaphorically referring to the attention we direct towards ourselves as a thought. And he said, this thought, this self-attentiveness is what he implies by that. It will destroy all other thoughts and in the end itself will be destroyed. That is the effort to, to attend to ourself is necessary until all other thoughts, including the root thought ego, is destroyed. Once the root thought ego is destroyed, the effort to attend to ourself becomes unnecessary. It's, it's burnt like all the, along with all the other thoughts. And what then remains is what alone, um, what alone actually exists. So Bhagavan, in this question and answer version, Bhagavan said, ended by saying, Pirahu Swarupadashanam Undahum. Sarupadashanam literally means seeing one's own real nature. Uh, TMP Mahadevan has translated it as self-realization. Um, but that's a rather unrefined way of putting it. This is a nice way in Tamil of putting it. Swarupadashanam means seeing what seeing ourselves as we actually are. Um, of course, it's not literally seeing, but the seeing is used here metaphorically. Um, this term self-realization, though this is often used in English books, Bhagavan, him, Bhagavan generally didn't speak in English, though he understood English. But this term self-realization, Bhagavan, Bhagavan commented, made, made a comment on this in English. He said, in English, he said, what is real is always real. There is no need to realize what is un what is real. The problem is that we have unrealized the unreal. Sorry, the problem. Sorry, the problem is that we have realized the unreal. So all we need to do is to unreal unrealize the unreal, and the real alone will remain. Bhagavan said that in English. Dave Rajamudli has also recorded something similar in Day by Day. So what Bhagavan means by that is, what is real is ourself. We don't need to realize ourselves because we are always real. The problem is that we've realized what is unreal, namely all the, this body and mind and world and everything else, we've realized as if it's real. So we need to unrealize that. How do we unrealize it? That by knowing what we actually are. When we know what we actually are, everything else will cease to exist because it's unreal. That's what Bhagavan meant by saying we have to unrealize the unreal, and then what will remain is the real alone. So when, when ego ceases to exist, everything else will cease to exist with it, and what will remain is ourself as we actually are. 
Um, so this is a very nice description of the practice of self-investigation. In the essay version, this comes at the uh, beginning of the sixth paragraph. Um, and that, sen that sentence, um, uh, um, then Swarupa Dashanam will arise. He doesn't, he didn't include that here, but that came in an earlier paragraph. In, uh, he talked about Swarupa Dashanam in the, in the third paragraph. But this sixth paragraph, as as you say, um, uh, uh, David, this is a very, Bhagavan very clearly explains here what is the practice of self-investigation. I will I will read the, at least the first half of this paragraph because it, this is such useful guidance on the practice of self-investigation. He begins by saying, only by the investigation who am I will the mind cease. The thought who am I, uh, destroying all other thoughts, will itself in the end be destroyed like a corpse burning stick. That we've discussed already. Then he goes on to say, if other thoughts rise, this is coming from the answer, this portion he took from the answer he gave to the 11th question in the question and answer version. If other thoughts rise, without trying to complete them, it is necessary to investigate to whom they have occurred. What does he mean when he says, if other thoughts arise? According to Bhagavan, as he said in verse, uh, in, in, in the fourth paragraph, that's two paragraphs earlier, he said, the world is nothing but thoughts. He said, uh, what is, uh, if we remove all thoughts, and how does he put it? Sorry, he says um, in the fourth paragraph, he says, um, when one looks, excluding thoughts, solitary, there's no such thing as mind. Therefore, thought alone is the nature of the mind. And then he goes on to say, excluding thoughts, there is not separately any such thing as the world. So the world is nothing but thoughts. And later on in the 14th paragraph, he says that even more succinctly, he says, That means what is called the world is only thoughts. Uh, so in what sense does Bhagavan say the world is only thoughts? That is when Bhagavan uses the term thought, he's referring to all mental impressions or mental phenomena of all kinds. The world is nothing but a series of perceptions, and perceptions are just mental impressions. That if the mind has impression of sights, sounds, uh, tastes, uh, smells, and tactile sensations, if you remove all these impressions, there's no such thing as world. So according to Bhagavan, the world is nothing but mental impressions. So when he talks about thoughts, he's meaning it in the broad sense for all types of mental phenomena or mental impressions. So when he says if other thoughts arise, he means if anything appears, whatever it may be, if any phenomenon appears, without following it, when he says without trying to complete them, he means without following the thought, it is necessary to investigate to whom they have occurred. So whatever may appear, doesn't matter whether, oh, I'm in a nice peaceful state, I'm in a blissful state, oh no, my mind is agitated, um, I'm getting all sorts of aches and pains in my body, whatever it is, whatever appears, to whom does it appear? That is what we need to investigate. He doesn't say it's necessary to ask to whom they have occurred, he says it's necessary to investigate to whom they've occurred. But verb he uses in Tamil is vicharika, vichar, um, 
Adu Yaroku, wait, say, how to put in Tamil? Hera Enangal Erendal. If other thoughts occur, Avatre Puti Panavataku Etniyama, without trying to complete them, Ave Yaroku and Diana into Vicharika Vendum. It is necessary to investigate to whom they have appeared. So, what does it mean investigating to whom they've appeared? Whatever appears, to whom does it appear? It appears to us. So investigating to whom means we turn our attention back to ourselves. And then he goes on to say, However many thoughts rise, so what? So Bhagavan isn't concerned about thoughts. Let any number of thoughts rise, so what? Whenever any thought rises, we should turn our attention back to ourselves, one to whom it has appeared. Then he goes on to say, vigilantly, that's a very important verb, adverb here, vigilantly. So we need to be very, very vigilantly, vigilant. Vigilantly, as soon as each thought appears, if one investigates to whom it has occurred, it will be clear to me. If one investigates who am I, the mind will return to its birthplace. Uh, uh, the thought that had risen will also cease. When one practices and practices in this manner, for the mind, the power to stand firmly established in its birthplace increases. So what's he mean here? When he says, vigilantly, as soon as each thought is, appears, if one investigates to whom it has occurred, it will be clear to me. So it doesn't matter how many thoughts appear, to whom have they appeared? To me. We turn our attention. In other words, that what he implies there when he says if one investigates to whom it will be clear to me, he means whatever may appear, it's appearing to me. So we should turn our attention back to ourselves. And then he says, if one investigates, who am I? So first he says, if one investigates to whom? And then he says, investigates, who am I? Why does he talk as if it's two stages? What it means is, investigating to whom it has appeared means turning our attention away from whatever has appeared back towards ourselves. So investigating to whom is the turning of our attention back to ourselves. And then he says, if one investigates, who am I? That means having turned our attention back to ourselves, we need to hold on to that self-attentiveness. So having turned our attention back to ourselves, if we then hold on to that self-attentiveness, the mind will return to its birthplace. What does he mean by the birthplace of the mind? The birthplace is the source. The source from which the mind arose is ourself. That is pure awareness I am. And then he goes, and he also adds, the thought that had risen will also cease. Why will the thought cease? Because thoughts cannot stand without our attending to them. Thoughts appear only in our awareness. So if we attend to thoughts, they will continue rising. If we, instead of attending to the thought, if we turn our attention back to attend to ourself, the one to whom the thought has appeared, because we're no longer attending to it, the thought will automatically um, cease. And then he said, very, very important this, ipidi paraka paraka, when one practices and practices in this manner, Manatiku tan piripiditil tanginikam shakti adikadikindradu. For the mind, the power to stand firmly established in its birthplace ceases. 
there are some people, many of the neo-advaitins nowadays, um, say practice is not necessary. Even that one of the founders of this neo-advaita movement, um, uh, a person called Punja, who claimed to be a disciple of Bhagavan, and he went under the name Papaji later on in his life, he, he often said practice is not necessary. He says, um, give up the search, stop practicing. But that is directly against Bhagavan's teaching. Bhagavan's teaching is all about practice. Bhagavan was repeatedly stressing the importance of practice. So he says here, ipadi paraka paraka, that means when we practice and practice in this manner, the mind will gain the power to stand firmly established in its birthplace. In other words, will gain the strength not to rise, to remain abiding in our source, being as we actually are. And then he, the paragraph goes on, but I won't uh, discuss more of it now. I mean, the whole paragraph is important, but this is the really important part. So, David, don't the, the, the importance of this paragraph cannot be overstressed. It is such, I mean, the whole of Nana is full of so many very, very useful practical clues. But and this is one of the very uh, among many important paragraphs. This is one of, uh, one of them. So uh, don't don't feel bad about focusing on this alone. This is what we should focus on. But don't. But I would suggest don't focus only on this paragraph. Read the whole of Nana again and again and again because there's so many very deep and subtle clues and encouragements Bhagavan gives. So that this this nana it is such a valuable work. It cannot be overestimated what a valuable work this is. So it is good to be single-minded, David. Thank you. Okay, David. <clears throat> totally satisfying answer, I suspect. Yes, thank good. you. Good, 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 good. <laughs> I'm uh, moving along pretty quickly. We normally spend the second hour going to people here live. I think we'll switch now to that format. I did get somebody in the, in the message. Uh, this is from Stuart of Colorado, who uh, says he has a, a very important question he'd like to ask you. So, Stuart, if you're there, take it away. I'm here. <laughs> I can see you. Good. Good. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you fine. Oh, good. Okay, great. Hi, guys. Gales, Michael. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Good to see you, alive and kicking in this dream. <laughs> um, okay, so you've quoted this to me and others multiple times, that everything that happens is through the will of Shiva. Do you know the quote I'm talking about? Uh, yes. Not a single atom moves but for the... Except by his grace. Yeah. Bhagavan okay. often used to say that. Okay. So Bhagavan, would you say he meant that as a true teaching or as for lesser? No, that is absolutely, that's absolutely okay. true. Okay. So here's my question. If that's true, okay, let's assume it's true because I know that what he says is mm. true. Given that truth, doesn't that mean or does it mean that when an action is taken, either agamya or prabda, agamya is the right word there? Yes. 
Okay, agamya or prabda, that is the will of Shiva. Um. Yeah. Well. Okay. Uh, you see, what I'm saying. Yeah, I I get what you're saying. But here we that that is this is a, this saying. Uh, not even an atom moves except by his grace. This is a. It's like a, almost like a proverb in Tamil. So yeah. Bhagavan often said this. Bhagavan often said, whatever is destined to happen will happen. We yeah. cannot change it. Like he wrote in the note for his mother. Um, that which is never to happen will not happen, however much effort is made. That yeah. which is to happen will happen, however much obstruction is made. Tinnam, this is certain, Bhagavan said. Right. When so we need to pay close attention to what Bhagavan says there. Whatever will is not going to happen is not going to happen, however much effort we make. Why does right. he add in there however much effort? Because um because okay, there is the, the because the ego can attempt to obstruct or encourage things that are meant or not meant to happen. Yes. That is, ego can act under the sway of its vasanas. Yes, its vasanas exactly. are the ego's will. Yes, yes. So, so how does that square with nothing happens but for the grace of Shiva? Okay. Is ego other than Shiva? No. Ultimately, so ultimately nothing is happening except by his grace. But he has, when we rise as ego, that is our real nature. We alone, act, we, we, we are Shiva. There's nothing other than Shiva. Yes. Shiva yes. We alone exist as Shiva. There's yes. no other thing. So Everything and, that appears is just an adjunct yeah. that so, has no existence. Yeah. So since we alone exist, we are infinitely free because there's nothing other than ourselves that can limit our freedom. So our real nature is infinite freedom. When yes. we rise as ego, we limit our freedom. That is, as ego, because we are limiting ourselves, we okay. are limiting our freedom. But okay. as ego, we always have a limited freedom. Bhagavan often talked about Icha Kriya Swatantra. That's actually a compound of two things. There's Icha Swatantra. Swatantra means freedom or independence. Icha means will. So Icha Swatantra is the freedom or independence of will. The Kriya Swatantra is the freedom or independence of action. Bhagavan okay. generally spoke about these together because they go ha hand in hand. If we had no freedom of will, freedom of action would be meaningless. So we have freedom of will. We can want whatever we want to want. So our We can act and we can act however we want to act. No, no. Obviously our actions are limited. I may want to fly in the sky like a bird, but I can't do that. So, uh, okay, but let's, let's yeah. take it out of the realm of the of yeah, the, yeah, yeah. No, the but, dream impossible. But anything I can, that I can, no, but it, I, I'm making an important point here. Our oh, okay, sorry, freedom sorry. of will is unlimited. We can want it's, whatever we want. Yeah. But we, uh, our freedom of action is obviously limited because of uh, oh. the limitations we've set upon ourselves by rising as ego. Yeah, yeah. But we have this freedom of will and action. It's using, when we misuse this freedom of will and action, that is called agamya. 
But okay, hold on. <clears throat> hold on. Let me ask a question because you just yeah. made a step there. Yeah. Okay. We don't have unlimited freedom of action. We have unlimited freedom of will. Yes. Is that correct? So uh, we don't have unlimited freedom of action. Well, even our will is in a sense limited. The sense By in which it is limited is that our will consists of vasanas. Right. So, or ego. Uh, or ego. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we seem to be limited by our vasanas. We have certain inclinations, okay. but vasana. The important thing to understand about vasanas: vasanas are inclinations. Yes. So we are never compelled to follow our inclinations. We may be inclined yes. to follow our inclinations. Yes. And as Bhagavan says, the vasanas rise in countless numbers, like ocean waves. Right. So. But all, all the activity of the mind and everything we experience, it's all the play of our vasanas. Yes. The whole world is a projection of our vasanas. So the vasanas are constantly playing, but the vasanas often are pulling us in different directions. For example, supposing, supposing we're, um, uh, we're, uh, we have a habit of smoking. We, we have a very strong inclination to have a cigarette, but we also have a strong inclination to avoid having a cigarette because we know if I smoke this cigarette, every cigarette I smoke, I'm increasing my chances of, of getting lung cancer and living being unhealthy. So I like to smoke and I also like to be healthy, but two likings are going in opposite directions. So we're constantly faced with a choice. Do I smoke or do I not smoke? Sometimes you may be swayed by Vavasana to smoke. Sometimes you may be swayed by Vavasana to avoid smoking. So the freedom we have is to, is to be swayed or not swayed by any particular Vasana. So we, can always, we are always free to choose which Vasanas we allow ourselves to be swayed by. So okay. that is where our real freedom lies. Okay, but so, so our, let me. Our freedom does seem to be limited by the vasanas in the sense that why we allow ourselves to be swayed by our vasanas? Because our vasanas are our likings. We, when we are swayed, if I, if I, or, or if version, I'm a or version. smoker and I allow myself to smoke, it's because I like to do so. so or it could be an swayed, aversion, something yeah. you don't want to experience. Yeah. It could so be. There right? are, there are limitations on our will, but those limitations are all internal limitations because our will is pulling us in many different directions. Okay. And that is why we need to be one-pointed in our will. We need to focus, we, we need to have one, one thing and one thing alone to surrender ourselves to Bhagavan and thereby to know and to be what we actually are. That should be our sole will. But now we have so many vasanas dragging us in so many directions. So we, be, our, our, our will is in one sense unlimited, but in another sense, it's limited by its own internal conflict, so to speak. Okay, so but, in that yeah. case, but, are, but you, he, is, that, is he disputing the idea, are the vasanas Shiva's will or not? No, but... but the freedom of Shiva, it, because we are not other than Shiva, the freedom of Shiva is, is reflected okay. in us in the freedom to, of will and action. 
So we can't say, we can't put, we can't blame God for our actions. We can't say, oh, you made me want this, and I did this because I wanted to do it, and you made me want to do it. He has given us the freedom. That is, he has given the freedom of will and action that we have is a reflection of the unlimited freedom that is our own real nature. So okay. this is a very subtle point. So we, we, we that is, the, these are, we, we need to have a very subtle understanding of this. Because if we simply say, oh, everything is Shiva's will, yes. Bhagavan once said, when someone was saying everything is Shiva's will, Bhagavan said, yes, if you surrender your will to Shiva, then everything is Shiva's will. But so long as you retain your will, you can't blame Shiva for what you do. So then the maximum isn't true. It, Not is, every it is still true in a very deep sense, but the freedom that we have is a reflection of that infinite freedom of Shiva. Wait, wait, hold on. Sorry, last question, because we got to move on. We got nine other people behind No, but this is, this is actually a very, can we, can we deal with this? Because this is a very important point. It's a very subtle point, but it's an important point to understand. The thing is, all, all this seems, the confusion you're getting is because you're taking ego to be something separate from Shiva, but nothing is separate from Shiva. Shiva alone is what actually exists. Ego is just an appearance. So the limited freedom that we have is a reflection of the infinite freedom that is our own real nature, which is Shiva. Yeah, okay. It's, it's very difficult for us to get our mind around this, because our mind is, our intellect is a limited instrument and we're trying to understand something which is beyond limits. So the, the, the grace and power and freedom of our own real nature is infinite. That's obvious. The yeah. question is, but is it that, what we The freedom we experience as ego is a reflection of that infinite freedom that is our own real nature. Yeah, that's clear. Yeah. Okay. It's just that it appears, sorry, Ted, please give me a moment, please. Mm -hmm. It appears that we can take actions that are not aligned with... Um, yes, but only the, because he permits have, us to... We can, have a vachaya vasana, we, we can act on our vachaya vasanas and not act on satvasana. Yes, we right? have that freedom. We have that freedom. Yeah. But that freedom comes from the source of that freedom is the infinite freedom that is Shiva, our own real nature. Okay. All right. We are misusing the, the limited freedom we have been given. We are misusing. Okay. All right, Michael. There's not enough time, and Ted's interrupting, so I'm, I'll give up. Yeah. Uh, well, I interrupt only because I know that there are people who come here once a month on Sundays to ask questions, and so I don't want to be unfair to anybody here and make it, because we've done this in the past where sometimes it becomes a, a two-person uh, back and forth. for. But I, I hope what, what Stuart yeah. is asking is a very valid point, and it's an important point to understand, because many people have a confusion about this. 
Many people think, oh, Bhagavan has said everything is predestined, therefore we have no freedom of will. That is a, a misunderstanding of what but Bhagavan's teachings are very, very deep and very subtle. So it's important for us to understand these things. Yeah. So I, I what, mean, what, I, what Stuart I, is yeah. asking is a very, very important point. Yeah. And you made that very clear, I think, a numerous times. So I was yeah. appreciated by all of us. I'm going to move on now to the uh, uh, Robert Douglas. I mentioned your name earlier that we were going to get to your question and we didn't. So I want to take this time now for you to ask it personally of, of Michael, if you want to. Uh, if you don't, we'll hold it for another week. You no, certainly. Yeah, I'm here. I'm just trying to pull it up. Where did I send it to you? I'm sorry, I would have been prepared a little bit better. Here we go. That is not it. I, I've Michael, got it. Yeah. Yeah, you've got. Why don't you? Why don't you just respond to it? I, I think mm -hmm. perhaps the second, the second part of it may be easier. Okay, I'll read what you have written. Okay. Um, within the philosophical context of Advaita Vedanta, the ego is the dreamer, not the universal self. So when the ego is dreaming and then awakens, the dream characters were not real. Advaita Vedanta, can I just add my own comment here? This is, the, this is what Bhagavan has taught us. What Bhagavan has taught us is Advaita Vedanta in its very purest form. But the majority of people who consider themselves to, to be Advaita Vedantins will not necessarily accept that all this is a dream. Because there are different levels of explanation given in Advaita Vedanta. So Bhagavan's teachings represent Advaita Vedanta in its very purest and deepest form. Um, but I'll continue what you, had what you had written. Advaita Vedanta argues that the waking state is similar to the dream state in, the, in that in both cases, the illusory ego was projecting itself into multiplicity in both. <clears throat> This is where I get confused. The one ego projects a dream world and a waking world by the power of Maya. So how can each character in the projections of the one ego experience their independent existence when, according to Advaita Vedanta, all is one? Ekameva Advaitiam. Um, that's your first question. Shall I answer that first and then go on to the second part? Well, I think maybe if you do the second They'll, people see how they're the same. Okay. It's just a different way of explaining it. Okay. Or perhaps put another way. You wrote in your amazing book, Ramana Maharshi's 40 Verses on What Is, so long as we are aware of any phenomena or forms other than ourselves, we have risen and are standing as ego, and we are thereby nourishing the ego. That, that is, we're nourishing ego by being aware of anything other than ourselves, is the implication. To make it subside back into its source, to starve the ego, we need to give up being aware of anything other than ourself and to be aware of ourself alone. And then you ask, who is the we and ourself? Okay, um, the we and ourself, there is only one. We are one. They're not two selves. They're not two eyes. The one eye, in its pure form, is just the mere, is our mere being, I am. 
But when it's mixed and when mixed and completed with adjunct, that same I appears as what is called ego. So, but but we who have to attend to ourselves obviously are ego. Um, but what we have to attend to is what we actually are, namely our own being. So we don't always have to distinguish. That is sometimes it's best to not. To, in some contexts, it's useful to say where we're referring to ego and where we're referring to our real nature. But particularly in the context of the practice of self-investigation, we don't have to distinguish. For example, I, but, but, but Michael, Michael, but, Michael, I, I understand that. It's when I have a dream, the ego is the dreamer, always the dreamer. Yes. When the dream, when the ego dreams, I go to yes. sleep and I dream, ego yes. dreams. And there are a bunch of ego, there's a bunch of characters in my dream. Yes. This is where I get a little confused. It's as if the characters assume an independent reality. Even yes. though it's me, ego, dreaming this dream. Yes. That is... So when, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. So long as we're <clears throat> dreaming, there, seem, there are many other people in our dream. And because we as ego, the dreamer, identify ourselves as one person in our dream, we identify every other person as an ego. So, so long as we are dreaming, every person in our dream seems to be an ego. So when we are looking outwards, there are, in effect, a multiplicity of egos. Are we as ego experiencing but, through them those multiple No, 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 no. Not, we are not experiencing through them. We're experiencing only through one person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ego only identifies itself with one person at a time. We see many other people and we see them as if they, they appear to us to be just like us. So they appear to be egos. So, so long as we're dreaming, in effect, for all, for all, intents and purposes within the dream, there are a multiplicity of egos. But all those many egos exist in whose view? Only in the one. view of the one ego who is dreaming. But we need to, we need to be very clear about this. That is, so long, Bhagavan often used to say, in, a, in dream, dream hunger is satisfied by dream food. That is, it, at the level of the dream, the, the, the hunger is real, the food we eat is real, and the satisfaction of the hunger is real. All, it all seems to be so. So just as real as our hunger is, and the satisfaction of our hunger by eating that dream food, so real are all the other people in the dream. Why this is very important? When mm. we... What is actually real is only ourself. When we dream, whether in a whether in a dream we have while asleep at night or this present dream, we what is actually real is only ourself. But we always identify ourselves as a person because we are real and we identify this person as ourself. This person seems to us to be real. And since this person is a part of the world, the whole world seems to be real. So now the person you seem to be, Robert, seems to you to be perfectly real. And just as real as Robert 
is Michael and Ted and everyone else in your life. So we, we have to act in this world as if there are a multiplicity of egos. Because that is how it appears. And who is the one who is acting? The one who is acting is one of the people in the dream. So that person in the dream who is acting as if the whole dream yeah. is real is as much a part of that dream as every other person. So we can't give, we shouldn't give more reality to the person we take ourselves to be than to any other person. So, so long as we take ourselves to be a person, we should take every other person to be a self, uh, to be an I just like us. And that's how and it that, appears to us to be. And that's why in conversations like we're having now, yes, there's a sort of a, there's a sort of a, an, a, a subtle agreement yes. that it, there's you and there's me. Yes, yes. When deep down we know that it's yeah, not. yeah. That yeah. that is the idea of solipsism is often ridiculed, and that, that is one of the common objections to uh, solipsism. They people say it's like having a conference of solipsis. Well, here we're having a conference of solipsis, but it's not actually meaningful, meaningless, because we, we, so long as we're, the, the conference is a part of this dream, that is the meeting we're having, this discussion we're having, is a part of this dream. But the Robert and the Michael who are engaged in this action are a part of the dream. But in whose view is all of this? That the one who is experiencing all of this, that is the dreamer. Then people say, is that you or is that me? <laughs> we, we shouldn't go that far because we're then mixing up different levels of reality. Thank you, Michael, so, so much. Thank you. So, um, <clears throat> how I sometimes express it to, to try and clarify this confusion, but what Bhagavan taught us is metaphysical solipsism. Akajiva Bhaji's metaphysical solipsism. We should not confuse metaphysical solipsism with social solipsism. Bhagavan obviously didn't teach much social solipsism. Bhagavan acted in this world as if he's one person among so many other people. He's not actually a person at all, of course. But in our view, Bhagavan seems to be a person. And as that person, he acted as if he's one among so many other people. Because that is the appropriate way to act in this world. It's the so only way, a... because it's all, so long as I experience myself as I am this body, just as real as this body seems to be I, other bodies seem to be other eyes. That's why Kestrop, uh, Bernardo Kestrop, yeah. confused those two. Yeah, he was confusing those two, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Okay. Uh, moving on. Thank you, Robert. I'm glad we could get to that. Uh, and another question today that many of us, I'm sure, can relate to. I certainly can myself, too. Thank you, Michael. And mm -hmm. while we're thanking you, Michael, Sadashiva wrote a comment real quickly. The teachings are beautiful today, and I think everybody agrees. We're going to, we got a lineup here. I've got a bunch of people in the chat room, but I want to get to Taj Kumar, who's got his hand raised over there. Go ahead, Taj, with your question. Hello, Michael. Hello. Um, I'm I'm right now in Tiruvannamalai. I'm right. in front of staying there, and I went to that office. Asked, I didn't get a, a proper answer. So you may answer to me. Um, 
I respect your teaching so much clarity. And I it's, see your teachings, Bhagavan's teachings only. <laughs> Yes, I see Bhagavan in your form. That's what I wanted to say. So, my question is, if I want to donate or my will to the teachings, like what you do, do you have any suggestion? What we have to donate to Bhagavan is ourselves. So <laughs> that what Bhagavan's teachings are all about is about giving ourselves, surrendering ourselves. So but if we want to repay Bhagavan for these precious teachings he has given us, the price to be paid, the Guru Dakshina, is our own ego. We must be ready to give ourselves wholly to Bhagavan. That is what the teachings are all about. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, Taish. I'm glad you could get, get in there quickly. Um, Michael, we're going to move on to Matt's Nigren, who's here joining us today. He has a question about self-inquiry. Matt, where are you? Here I am. There you are. Take it away. Yes, so there was some talk about that today, that there is just one self, so there's no question of which self are we investigating. But some, something more can be said about that and, and uh, because if I am, am aware that, okay, I'm, I'm investigating myself in the sense of ego, that could be taken as therapy, whether I do it by myself or with some therapist. It's not the point here. The point is that I might... Uh, Notice, oh, I seem to have this uh, trauma, for example. Maybe I need to take you. And then, and then I, I am, uh, you could say, objectifying myself or looking at details on myself. And I have been, before that, this taking that, that that is not what is meant by self-inquiry. But now I would like to hear you expand on this a little bit. Or where would the limits be? You know, when, when there is, so to, so to speak, too much interest in the ego as a person, as you know, this body with this life and these memories. Right. And when it is too much of that, and when okay. it's... Okay. We understand. Uh, I understand, yes. The important thing is to understand is ego is not the person. Ego identifies itself as a person. So now ego is aware of itself as I am Matt's. But ego is not Matt's. In self-investigation, we are trying to separate ourselves from the person we seem to be. So we need to distinguish what we are investigating is not the person we seem to be. We're investigating the I that is aware of itself as I am this person. So ego is not the person. Ego is the I that is aware of itself as I am this person. That distinction is, is fundamental. If we don't understand that distinction, then we we haven't begun to understand what is the practice. So if I may reformulate, then you're saying no, that this kind of idea about th therapy, let's say doing it yourself, self-therapy, uh, like I must watch my anger management or whatever kind of, you know, this kind of stuff, that is definitely not self -therapy. This is something far, far deeper than that. 
Because anger is something that appears and disappears. It's something other than yourself. We're investigating that which is ever-present. We're investigating our own being. Yeah. This My is thought... very therapeutic. This is the best therapy of all. But that is a, a byproduct of it. Uh, what we are holding on to is that which is, we are trying to hold on to that which is permanent, that which is ever existing and shining as our own being, I am. I'm not disputing anything you say, and, and, but, but I, I'm, I'm fishing for some more detail because it's, it could be, for example, my anger that is actually, uh, you know, hiding this... Uh, your, anger, your anger distracts your attention away from yourself towards exactly. whatever you're angry about. But the way to diffuse anger is to turn your attention back to yourself. To whom is this anger? Who is experiencing this anger? That's not, you don't ask the question, but you turn your attention back to the I who is experiencing the anger. And then that, that I will subside and the anger will subside along with it. And that applies not just to anger, to anything any desire, any, whatever it may be. We are, the, our sole aim in this practice is to constantly turn our attention back towards ourself. By turning our attention towards ourself, we are withdrawing our attention from everything else. So we are diffusing our desires, our anger, our jealousies, whatever it may be. We're diffusing everything and we are subsiding more and more and more and more. So may I make a small follow-up? Yes, yes, certainly. So when when speaking with people with a spiritual interest, similar to ours, but maybe different in important ways also, Westerners, mm. they might call this, what we are talking about here, um, what is it called? Spiritual bypass. And you cannot avoid uh, healing your traumas and this kind of... So th th this question is about that kind of thing. But you seem to be saying, no, just, just to forget about that and just... He, he, in a sense, Bhagavan has called this the direct path. The direct path is bypassing everything else, going straight back to the source. The way to... That is, we need to bypass everything. Because everything... All the whatever we may be bypassing is something other than ourselves, so we need not be concerned about it. We are, and by bypassing all these things, we are that is the best, as I said, it's the best therapy, it's the best solution to whatever trauma or whatever we may have. But this is they no therapy can even come close to the efficacy of this therapy. Not that we're doing it just for therapy, but this in one of the byproducts of doing this, this is the, the ultimate therapy. It's not only dealing with all our traumas and all our desires and hopes and fears and whatever it may be. It's dealing with the one who has the trauma, one who has desire, one who has hopes, one who has fears, one who has anger or jealousy or whatever it may be. We are cutting at the very root of the whole problem. 
Thank you. That's very clear. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I sent you two questions on the email. I don't think we have time for that, but I hope I will uh, some way or other. Okay. We'll, yes. Yeah, some sometime. Yeah. We'll keep those for yeah. a following Thank week. You. Thanks, yeah. Matt. But we can get it in. Uh, and I've learned that long ago. Uh, when somebody's asking something or I'd like to talk to somebody else about any of these issues, I either talk about them from the world's view or from Ramana's view, and they're vastly different, as you've pointed out, Michael. Yeah. Okay, we have uh, Barbara from Hawaii, who's next. We're going to get a couple more in before the time elapses. And thanks for being with us again today, Barbara. What's your question for Michael? Uh, namaskar, Michael. Namaskar. Hi. I just want to know, is there an English version of the uh, Bhagavan's uh, essay version of the questions that it, and answers in uh, Nanyar? Yes, on, on my, it hasn't been published yet as a book, but my on my website, I have uh, given a, as, as accurate a translation as I've been, I've been, my translation I've been refining over the past 40 plus years. Okay. And what is on my website, happinessofbeing.com, it's it's there. Okay. Your website so, is happiness of being. Happinessofbeing.com. All one okay. word. Thank you. Is that it? That's it. <laughs> very good. You get you break the record. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Michael could have gone for 40 minutes or for 40 seconds. Oh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we have a quick comment from Moxie, who's with us uh, for many for several years now to everyone. Thank you for asking for everyone asking and answering about spiritual bypassing. That was my next burning question. And from here, we're going to turn to Melissa, who I think is still with us. She sent a couple of questions. Melissa, do you want to ask Michael about your what you call your small question about Maya? Maybe she's not here. Um, instead of oh, I'm here. Okay, um, good. I'm here. Um, so my question is just a, a really um, pretty basic. Um, I wonder if Ramana ever gave a deeper explanation of Maya. I, I know that he he did. Um, at times speak about Maya. And what I wonder is, is Maya really a kind of a creation myth, uh, which is really beyond the ability of the mind to ever understand? So we really can only rest in letting it be a mystery. And... Uh, uh, and just uh... Bhagavan clarified that Maya is nothing but ego. Ego itself is Maya. And the way to get, and Maya is not real. Maya, the etymolo etymology of Maya, or at least the, the, but how Maya is often explained, and Bhagavan also often used to refer to this, uh, it, they, they say in Sanskrit, Yama Samaya. That means, Yama means she who is not. So uh, uh, Maya is what is not. So Maya doesn't actually exist. 
But so long as we raise his ego, we we seem to we as ego seem to exist, and this ego is nothing but Maya. And Maya is said to so, have two um, two there two characteristics of Maya, two forces of Maya. There's the Avarana Shakti and the Vikshepa Shakti. Avarana means the veiling or covering power. So by rising as ego, we we veil or conceal our real nature. Instead of being aware of ourselves as just I am, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. I am Melissa. I am Michael. I am whoever. That is the Avarana, the veiling. And as soon as we veil ourselves, then Vikshepa Shakti takes over. Vikshepa means dissipation. So we, having, we, first we see ourselves as this person, as this body. I am Melissa. Then we see ourselves as all this multiplicity. Yeah. So that is all just. Yes, thank you. Uh, yes. Um, and, and I, I do see uh, exactly what you're pointing to. Uh, the feeling I have is that it still remains a mystery uh, in that um, the, the, the way in which um, the veiling occurs and the appearances uh, of body, mind, and world uh, seem to appear it is still a mystery, it, which is okay. It, it, it <laughs> can, will always be a I mystery can, because it, how can that which doesn't exist seem to exist? That is, that is always a mystery. <laughs> if we, but if we investigate yes. it, that's why it is said Maya is anivachaniya. It's inexplicable, inexpressible. It cannot be, we cannot account yes. for Maya. But if, yes. we, if we investigate who am I? We put an end to Maya. That's all. That we don't, yes, we don't yes. solve the mystery of Maya. We just see, but there never was any such thing. There never was any mystery at all. But so long as we rise <laughs> as ego, it's, it's a, a never-ending mystery. Yes, yes. Thank you very much. Right. Could one say uh, that, that, that uh, Maya... Is... I'm not going to get into <laughs> Whatever we say about Maya is both true and untrue. But ultimately, there's no such thing at all. Yeah. But in order to see there's no such thing at all, we need to turn our attention within to see what we actually are. And then we will see that we alone are. There never was any Maya or ego or world or anything. Asking about mystery is other than I. Yes, so therefore, yes, 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 yes. Therefore, therefore it... it it's an illusion. Yeah, yeah. We we're not here to solve the mystery. We're here exactly. to find the reality that underlies this mystery, and then we'll see. Find there's no mystery at all. Right. Neti neti. As I was taught years ago, I am not this. I'm not that. Yeah. This or that. <laughs> Thank but you. Everyone doesn't say neti neti. Everyone says iti iti. What Is we actually mean? are. If we hold on to what we actually are. What we are not will take care of itself. It will drop off. Yeah. Great. <laughs> I look forward to that day. Uh, any last comment from you before we say goodbye, Michael? No. Okay. Thank you very much for <laughs> showing up. What is Bhagavan's teachings all about? Turning within and subsiding, subsiding, subsiding. That's what it's all about. Yeah. 
Yeah. I've got a question. Can be answered? Quick question. Yes. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, I wanted to ask, like, when we see our contents of the consciousness, can we end it? Barely. Or not end it totally. Uh, we're having trouble hearing you. Uh, how do we end the content of our consciousness? Can you hear that, Michael? How do we end the content of consciousness? Consciousness. consciousness. Content of consciousness. The thought that goes inside us and the emotions, the feelings, and all of it. When we look away from ourselves, we see the content of consciousness. If we turn our attention back towards ourselves, the content of consciousness will subside along with the one in whose view that content appeared. So the solution to all problems has been given to us by Bhagavan, turning our attention within. So long as we attend to the content of consciousness, we are feeding and nourishing ego and thereby indirectly feeding that content. If we turn our attention back towards ourselves, ego will subside and the content of that appears of the so-called content of consciousness, which is the content of the ego's view, will subside along with it. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect comment to end this day's yes. program. So uh, as I said, Bhagavan's teaching. If we want to summarize it in one word, subside, 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 subside. And we subside by turning our attention back within. And we're all practicing that, I'm sure, more and more every day. Um, we, we should be. Yeah. But if we're <laughs> honest with ourselves, we're not doing it nearly enough. <laughs> very good. Michael, thank you very much. I know you're uh, still a little iffy and with your with your health and that you break. That's okay. <laughs> health ex- comes and health goes. Yeah. And we'll see you in the first Sunday of March coming up. Yep. Uh, have a great month in the meantime. And right. thank you all for joining us today, too. Uh, another record crowd of people interested to hear from Michael, who uh, brings this Ramana with every word that he utters. Thank you very much. And see you all next week, those of you who join us on Sundays, and next month for those of you who join us when Michael's here. <laughs>